Well, you have certainly convinced me. You ever made that statement to anybody in regard to anything they've been trying to convince you about? Or what about this statement? Well, you have certainly converted me. I'm a convert. What's the difference in those two statements? Some might tell us none. But the Bible tells us there is a world of difference between those two statements. How much difference? The difference between heaven and hell. That's right. To be convinced of something, as contrasted with being converted to something, is the difference between heaven and hell. I can read in John 12, 42 and 43, for example, of the rulers of the synagogue, nevertheless, even of the rulers, uh, many of the rulers believed on him. They were convinced, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Were they saved? No. Were they convinced? Yes. Were they converted? No. Thus, we can see from Scripture the vast difference between being convinced of something and being converted to something. And since it's not enough to be convinced, but we must be converted, this morning I want us to talk about the common characteristics of conversion. Making sure it's up there. The common characteristics of conversion. We find those characteristics listed in Scripture, and they are vitally important. But where in Scripture can we find them? Well, we could find principles concerning these things in various books, but I want us to concentrate on the book of Acts and look at the common characteristics of conversion, specifically with some references to examples from the book of Acts. I think the obvious place where we should begin if we're looking at the things that are common to conversion or the common characteristics of conversion would be with a childlike spirit. A childlike spirit. The Beatitudes begin, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That childlike spirit. But there's a passage in Matthew 18, 2 through 4, where Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, not convinced now, notice, but unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And then he goes on, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's where it all has to begin. There will be no conversion without the childlike spirit. There has to be that attitude, teach me. There has to be that attitude, here am I, fill me up. My bucket is empty, fill it up. Here am I, I want to know what the will of God is. And there must be that humility, that childlike spirit that teachableness, if you will, that is characteristic of conversion, and I would suggest to you, to you a foundational characteristic of conversion. Well, what about an example of a childlike spirit? Again, the book of Acts, we said we're concentrating there. Look at the, look at the eunuch in Acts uh, chapter 8. 
Of course, the, uh, the Spirit instructed Philip to go to the eunuch. He was, uh, he'd been to Jerusalem. The eunuch had to worship. He was on his, uh, his way back. He was of the, uh, uh, of the uh, household there of Candace, a uh, treasurer there, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, eunuch. And uh, he had been, uh, obviously, uh, there to worship, indicative of the kind of attitude uh, that he uh, had. And the angel of the Lord uh, spoke to Philip and uh, told him to arise and go along the road which is coming down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he went. There was this uh, man of Ethiopia. He uh, had charge of her treasury, this eunuch. He was a man of, uh, of uh, responsibility. He was returning and sitting in his uh, chariot. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake your chariot. Uh, overtake the chariot. Now look at verses 30 and 31. No, so Philip ran to him. Incidentally, Philip ran to him. He didn't hesitate, didn't meander over there. He ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him this question, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? You know, pride might have caused the eunuch to say, well, of course I understand. Do you not know that I am a, a eunuch under great authority with Queen Candace? I have charge of her treasury. Why would you dare ask me whether or not I can understand what I'm reading? Whether you understood it or not. Pride might have caused him to simply lie about it. But instead, he demonstrated the childlike spirit that is common to conversion and said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he asked Philip to come up and sit, and sit with him. And what was the end result of that childlike spirit with which the eunuch began the conversation with Philip? He said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Then they both came up out of the water, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because the process began with a childlike spirit. And then two chapters later, we come to Cornelius. And we're very familiar with this man who was doing the best he could to please God. The angel appeared to him. Of course, this is a unique situation where he's about to become the first Gentile convert, he and his uh, household, and so the angel tells him to send to Joppa for one whose uh, name is Peter, and that he will tell him words, words by which he would be saved. Again, the emphasis on what? The Word of God. Now, after the process is nearing its completion, Philip, uh, I mean, uh, Peter has, has arrived, and Cornelius addresses him in Acts 10, and I want to concentrate on verse. 33. This is after Cornelius has rehearsed what had taken place. He's letting Peter know, I was in my house a certain time of the day, and the angel appeared to me, told me to send for you. I've done that, and now you have come, in effect. And so he says, so I sent to you immediately, which tells you something about the man. I sent to you immediately. I didn't uh, ponder the situation. I didn't doubt the situation. I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now listen to this. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you 
by God. What a statement. What an indication of that childlike spirit. What an indication of the kind of receptivity that should characterize and that we would hope would characterize every single person in relation to the Word of God. We are all here recognizing that we are in the presence of Almighty God. We're here before God and we're here for a purpose to do what? To hear what? Most of the things you have to say. We're here to hear the things that agree with our prejudices about what you are about to tell us and if it agrees with what we've already decided then we'll go along with it. That's not what you read here. We are here before God, present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. What an attitude. And it should be the attitude of every single one of us here today. That we are here and we are present before God. And it is our responsibility to hear all things commanded by God. And it's my responsibility to leave nothing out of that that is pertinent to your salvation or to mine. But the attitude should be that childlike spirit that says, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Or speak, Lord, I want to be your servant. So tell me what to do to become your servant. And so the childlike spirit is the foundational characteristic that is common to conversion. But there's another one. Not just the childlike spirit, but a conscience that is capable of being pricked. A conscience that is capable of being reached. And oh, how important that is. And again, to the book of Acts, to see Paul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, of course, as we well know. But in Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, when the Lord appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, and the Lord was asked by Saul, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said this to him in verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's he saying? Saul, I know you. I know you to be a man who is of good conscience. Later in Acts 23.1, the text we have there, the reference, he said that very thing, didn't he? Paul said, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this very day. The Lord knew him to be a man whose conscience could be pricked, could be changed and needed to be changed. And he said, it's going to be hard for you to kick against the goads. It's going to be hard for you to resist because of the kind of man you are, because of the kind of conscience you have. And it's vitally important for us to have that kind of conscience. What about those on Pentecost? Again, in Acts chapter 2, remember near the culmination of of Peter's sermon. We don't have all of it recorded, but in verse 36, there's a climactic conclusion that leads to a statement in verse 37 that is very significant. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Some 3,000 on Pentecost had consciences that were capable of being pricked. They were cut to the heart. They were made to feel the kind of guilt that led them because they were the right kind of people who could be reached to change their thinking. 
the conscience, how important it is that we have the kind of conscience that can be reached, as was the case with Saul of Tarsus, as was the case with some 3,000 on Pentecost, because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the conscience can become seared. That's why it's so important for us to have the kind of conscience that Saul of Tarsus had. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the truth, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having, here it is, their own conscience seared with a hot iron. There's the illustration. You have a burn that is very painful, but because nerve endings are, are ultimately destroyed by that burn, depending upon the nature of that burn, then there's an insensitivity that develops there, and you could probably prick yourself repeatedly with a pen and never know you had done it. That's the illustration. The conscience can become seared. The conscience can become hardened. The longer you sit in this or any other audience of people and hear the gospel time and time again and fail to respond to it, the easier it becomes to fail to respond to it. And there's the extreme danger. There's the extreme danger of not obeying the gospel because of having the conscience that is capable of being reached before it becomes seared. We can become hardened of heart. The conscience can be seared. But another characteristic of conversion that we see in Scripture and particularly in the book of Acts is counting the costs. No way to overemphasize the importance of understanding what the costs of Christianity are. That yes, there is a cost. There is a sacrifice. There is something that has to be considered in terms of what you're about to do in conversion. Acts 19, 17 through 19. Again, here at Acts in Ephesus and what had taken place there with the itinerant Jews who had uh, taken upon themselves to try to cast out uh, evil spirits and of course they failed utterly to be able to, uh, to do so but Paul had demonstrated truly his power that he had from God and when all that became clear and became known as verse 17 says both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Now listen to this. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. They counted the cost. They didn't sell their books of magic and say, well, you know, we're not going to use these anymore, but you know, there's money in these books, and so let's sell them to somebody else who's still practicing this stuff, even though we're not going to do. No, they didn't reason that way. They simply burned them, and the total amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's an example of counting the cost. 
the principle is stated by the Lord in this matter in Luke 14, 26, and again at verse 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, that is, love less, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. A few verses later at verse 33, Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We've talked about these, these passages before, and we need to talk about them again and again because they are vitally important, absolutely crucial to our understanding of conversion, and that there is a cost involved. But it's a cost that's worth paying because the cost pales in comparison to the blessings that follow for those who are willing to count the costs of conversion and to truly be converted. And those blessings we could enumerate and enumerate in sermon after sermon after sermon. And we seek to do that because we need to be aware of those blessings. But there is a price to pay. You've got to turn your back upon this world. You've got to count the cost. And sometimes that cost involves a family relationship. Sometimes that cost involves the severance of a, of a friendship. Because people will not continue to befriend one who has left them in their worldly ways and who is an open and living and constant rebuke to those ways and so they want no part of it. So you have to decide. Do I keep the relationship with those in the world or do I establish and keep the relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father? Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We've often said this passage does not teach Whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be one of my top disciples. That's not there. He says, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple, period. Why? Because that has to be the attitude that we're willing to pay whatever the price because of the promise. The price pales in comparison to the promises that are ours as children of God. But then another characteristic that's common to conversion is a change of mind and an accompanying change of direction. If we go back to Acts 2, one verse later than verse 37, we find Peter saying to those on Pentecost, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. What does it mean to repent? In Bible class this morning, we talked about an excellent Old Testament illustration of repentance, because in Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said that those of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation because they repented, the Ninevites did, at the preaching of Jonah, and a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said the Ninevites repented. Whatever they did back here in the book of Jonah, Jesus called it repentance. Some today call repentance saying, I'm sorry, and then continuing to do whatever you were doing before you said, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance or worketh repentance. In other words, it's a, it's a predecessor of it. 
uh, it's a, it, it comes before, it's a prerequisite to it. It leads to repentance, but sorrow in itself is not repentance. Well, listen again to what the Ninevites did. They clothed themselves with sackcloth and ashes, something we don't have to do today. That was just simply customary to uh, that particular time as an outward demonstration of their, of their sorrow and their, their penitence. But verse 10 of Jonah 3 says, Then God saw their works. There was a work involved in repentance. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. That's it. It involved a change of mind on the Ninevites' part, but then a change of direction. They had to turn. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. Jesus said the Ninevites repented. What did the Ninevites do? They changed their minds and they changed their actions. Indeed, they did. They turned. Well, Acts 3 and verse 19 is really a parallel text to Acts 2.38. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The American Standard says repent and turn again. Turn, there's the word turn. Be converted. Conversion is a turning. Repent, change your mind, and turn or be converted so that what? Your sins may be blotted out. Saying I'm sorry is not the equivalent of conversion. Saying I'm sorry is not the equivalent of repentance, which is a common characteristic of conversion, a change of mind and a change of direction. But then, finally, once one has done these things, it is incumbent upon the individual to continue in the faith. And we need to make sure that if we have fully taught someone, that they understand the importance of what comes after they come forth from the watery grave of baptism. And I believe if they've truly been converted, surely they will understand if we've taught them properly, and we should do that, that's our responsibility, that continuing in the faith is absolutely crucial. That one cannot rise from the watery grave of baptism, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ that's applied in that burial, and simply walk out of here and never darken the doors again of this or any other faithful congregation of God's people and believe that one is on his way or her way to heaven. There must be a continuing in the faith. Again, in the book of Acts. Those on Pentecost, some 3,000 precious souls who obeyed the gospel and were baptized into Christ, did what? Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They did not continue spasmodically. They did not continue occasionally. They continued steadfastly. Steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts chapter 8, remember when Simon the sorcerer was converted? In Acts 8 and verse 13, Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip 
and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now that's an interesting point concerning Simon. It says that when he himself believed, and he was baptized, he became a Christian, he continued. But continuing in the faith doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to keep on continuing in the faith simply because we start to continue. And Simon himself is an example of that, isn't he? You remember what happened to Simon the sorcerer. The apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John down there, remember? Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. These miraculous gifts of the Spirit that were needed in that time had to be conveyed by the laying on of an apostle's hands. And that's why Peter and John went down there so that they could have those gifts so that the church could function until such time, obviously, as this was completed, after which we needed no more miraculous gifts, and we have none because we don't need them, we have this. But at that point in time, the church was in its infancy and needed those miraculous gifts to function. So Peter and John went down to lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, that is, these miraculous gifts. Simon got into trouble at that time, didn't he? Because when Simon, who had been a sorcerer, a complete fake, prior to this time, saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, that on anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say to him? Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Well, I thought he was continuing in the faith. He was, but he didn't continue without some difficulty because the old Simon, the old Simon cropped up. Was it indication he'd never been converted? No, no. But he lapsed, and when he did, he was told to repent and pray. An example that tells us that the wayward child of God doesn't need to be baptized again if he's been properly baptized. But a wayward child of God who's done what Simon did here and sinned publicly needs to simply confess that sin as publicly as it's been committed, to say, I have sinned, pray with me and for me, as was done on this occasion, that we might be forgiven. And so continuing in the faith is an essential part, an outgrowth, if you will, of true conversion. But even with that, it does not necessarily mean that we can never fall. In fact, Simon did fall. And perhaps many of us, if not all of us, know of others who have been converted but who have not continued. The common characteristics of being convinced? No. The common characteristics of being converted, what are they? A childlike spirit. A conscience capable of being pricked. A willingness to truly count the cost of discipleship. A true change of mind that leads to a change in direction. And then a determination to continue in the faith. Now let me ask you, have you been convinced or have you been converted? There is a difference. 
And as we said at the outset, the difference is the difference between heaven and hell. You can be completely convinced without being converted, but you must be converted in order to be saved. Believe with all of your heart this morning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24. Believe that I am here, die in your sins. Repent, as we've talked about repentance and what it truly means. Repent or perish, Jesus said in Luke 13, 3. Change your mind and then determine to change your direction. Confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's promised if you'll do that, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And then be buried with him in baptism. Because until you have been buried in baptism, there is no salvation because there is no blood to cleanse you from sin. Because it is in baptism that the blood of Christ is applied. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. How much clearer could Jesus have made it than he did there in Mark 16, 16? And then continue in the faith once you have become a part of the faith, Christianity, added to the kingdom, the church, the pre-denominational body of believers that exists here and in so many other places. And we'll encourage you to continue and we'll help you to continue in the faith. But if you're here this morning as one who hasn't continued in the faith but was once a part of the faith, the kingdom, and you know that your life does not reflect the king and the light of the king, the light of the world, and you need to come home and confess that you've sinned and restore your influence and restore your precious soul, God welcomes with open arms those of his wayward children who are truly willing to repent and to confess, and to come home. And we're eager and willing to pray with you and for you to that same God who loves you supremely. Convinced or converted? A world of difference. Will you come as we stand to sing?